estrogen is not only important for preventing the breakdown of bone, but also estrogen is really essential for collagen. And collagen is what creates elasticity in bone. So estrogen has huge number of positive effects on bone, not only on increasing the bone mass density by reducing the turnover of bone and the breakdown of bone, but also by helping with the elasticity. Well, that's Dr. Kuki Avery, a GP and menopause specialist who, along with her colleague, Dr. Laura Flexer, has written a paper on the connections between oestrogen and bone health. I'm Liz Earle, and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. And I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, how conscious are you of your bones? Was it something you gave any thought to at all when you were younger? I know I certainly didn't and actually didn't really become much aware of my skeleton in midlife and beyond either. I might think about my muscles and my muscle tone and my fat loss and my body shape, but bones? Well, not so much. So Dr. Laura Flexer and Dr. Cookie Avery are colleagues at Chelvy Menopause and they've written a paper which was published in the Post-Reproductive Health Journal all about bone health in women suffering from anorexia. Now, interestingly, studies have shown that using oestrogen through the skin, so that's gels, patches, sprays, these women can help to protect their bones. But as we find so often is the case, access to that oestrogen is very much a postcode lottery It's an issue that they've come across both as NHS GPs wanting to find support for women suffering from anorexia, but also as menopause specialists talking to women who'd been struggling with anorexia for many years and at perimenopause already had osteoporosis that might just have been prevented by giving oestrogen earlier on in life. So what is the connection between oestrogen and bone density and what should we be doing to protect our bone health in later life as a result? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Thank you. 
Well, you know, I'm not sure that we think about our bones a huge amount. We're conscious maybe perhaps more of our muscles, our fat, our brains. But bones, well, they don't tend to get a huge look in, do they? So why is it so important that we give them as much thought and attention as perhaps any other part of our physical health? Laura, would you like to come back to why our bones matter so much during midlife? You're absolutely right, Liz. I think that, um, you know, bones just don't seem to get a lot of airtime. And yet they're, they're such an important part of our body They're you know, our skeleton is, you know, the very bones of what we hang everything else on. And yet we talk so little about them. And, you know, as NHS GPs and menopause specialists, bone health comes into so much of what we do. Uh, it's particularly relevant to our to our menopause work for reasons that I'm sure we'll come on to in a second. Bone health, as you said, is, is so important for women going through the menopause. And osteoporosis is a completely preventable condition with such devastating consequences. And because it's talked about so little, you know, we really feel that with more awareness, we'll be able to reduce some of that impact that osteoporosis has in society because the t- statistics are really shocking. Do you want to remind us of those so we can be suitably shocked? Absolutely. I mean, the statistics around osteoporosis are really, really staggering. Worldwide, 9 million women annually fracture. And this results in an osteoporotic fracture every three seconds. And I, wow. I think that more, more fascinating is that the number of women that go on to die from hip fractures is similar to the number of women who die from breast cancer. And I think that's why we, we want to be here talking about this is because osteoporosis can lead to as many deaths as breast cancer and yet it isn't something that we're talking about. Cookie, why is that? I mean, thinking about it as a layman here, why would a hip fracture kill me? So great question. And and just to clarify the statistics around hip fractures and death, um, we know from research that a year after a patient fractures their hip, that 20 to 25% of them will die within a year and that 50% of them will no longer be able to live independently for the rest of their lives. So it's a huge personal impact on the patients, but it's also an enormous burden on the healthcare system. We know that the NHS spends £4.4 billion a year treating and managing osteoporosis and the effects of it. So why do patients die? Yeah, Mm. it's staggering. Coming back to your question, why do patients die from hip fractures? And it it is because of the impact on them from a healthcare perspective. They are then hospitalized. They're much more at risk of of picking up other infections. And and as I said, uh, very few of them regain their mobility. So as you can imagine, they're much more at risk of of blood clots and muscle wasting. So it's a huge, as I said, a huge health burden Mm -hmm. and something we need to be talking about more. Yeah, absolutely. Laura, I'd like to pick up on the the point earlier about us not really thinking very much about our bones. And I think one thing that strikes me is that maybe we don't think very much about our bones because we assume that we can't do anything about it. You know, we know that we can go to the gym and we can get, you know, more toned and create more muscle mass and all of that and we can lose weight and we can get fitter. 
but you know bone is bone and I guess this is perhaps a strange question for you but you know what is bone do we ever grow new bone does bone strength come from its density is it something else can we actually influence and change our bones such an amazing question and you're absolutely right I think we don't think about it because we just think bones are there you know what do bones (laughs) do they're just there aren't they but actually bones are so fascinating and I think a really good place to start is by chatting about how we develop and maintain our bone and um, strength through our adult lives because there are several phases in bone development across our lifetime and bones are not fixed and solid structures they're a really living growing part of our body um, and a reactive and dynamic they're constantly changing so bones are constantly being what we call remodeled so they're constantly being broken down and built up by cells in the body and that is what maintains our bone strength and it's this balance between these two processes that determines whether or not you gain bone or lose bone at that particular point in time. I think really fascinatingly, our entire skeleton is replaced every 10 years. So every 10 years, no we'll get a whole way. new skeleton over really? time. Yeah, absolutely. And over <laughs> yeah, every nine months, it is. It's so interesting, isn't it? And small pieces of bone are replaced about every nine months. So, so yeah, 10 years for a whole new skeleton. And I think, you know, one of the really important things to say is that we can start thinking about bones really early on in our life. So we have this rapid phase of bone accrual early in life when our bone is being built up very quickly during puberty, much more quickly than bone is being broken down. And we've gained about 90% of our peak bone mass by our late teens and early 20s. And then we have a small amount of further bone gain over the next sort of five to 10 years. And then at that point, we have a phase um, in sort of fit, healthy people with no other, nothing else that might be affecting their bone strength. We have a, a phase of relative bone stability where bones are being broken down at roughly the same rate as they're being built up. Uh, and that is until the perimenopause for women, um, where we will go through this rapid phase of bone loss, where bone is broken down much more quickly than it can be built up, which is is tied up in, in, in our estrogen as women. So, and actually for women, it's it's a double whammy because we don't build up as much bone mass in that crucial pubertal time as men do and then we lose it really quickly in the perimenopause and menopause Cookie, I was doing a podcast recently with Professor Avram Blooming from the States, who's written a book called Estrogen Matters. And he's, you know, massive advocate for replacing estrogen for uh, women during perimenopause and menopause and actually onwards postmenopause. As part of that podcast, which wasn't about bone health, actually, it was about breast cancer risks. But as part of that, he dropped the bombshell that estrogen is needed in our bones and not only is it needed it's the only thing that supports elasticity in bone you know we've talked briefly here about bone density and strength but when it comes to elasticity is that something that that you counsel women on the fact that there is this close relationship with estrogen and our bones so such an interesting area and as you've said liz uh, estrogen is not only important for preventing and as laura just said the breakdown of bone but also estrogen is really essential for collagen and collagen is what creates elasticity in bone so estrogen has huge number of positive effects on bone not only on increasing the bone mass density by reducing the turnover of bone and the breakdown of bone but also by helping with the elasticity that is really fascinating you know I and mean, we often think about hrt and we often talk about it here on the podcast 
but not necessarily in relation to, to bone health. And I guess that leads me back to the question about osteoporosis, because as you said, that is such a huge issue and such a significant health risk for, for midlife women, particularly leading cause of morbidity and mortality in, in later years. Obviously, it's got a significant burden on our health and social care costs. In terms of osteoporosis, why is it that it happens really so often during midlife? Is it to do with this hormone change rather than general bone degradation? You know, to what extent are hormones involved or is it simply wear and tear as we age? It's a combination of both things, really. And I, th- I think we can, uh, you know, address bone health at both ends of that spectrum. So, you know, I think it's a really relevant point that we should be talking about bone health really early on, because the more bone that we, we gain and maintain in that really crucial period, that, that we'll be losing bone at the menopause from a higher place. But for adolescents who've had their bone mineral density affected at that time when they're building up their bone, that in certain circumstances will affect their bone forever. So they will never gain as much bone as they might have done had they not had that insult on their bone. Um, and it's, you know, that's relevant for adults as well. So if in your reproductive life, when your bone is being turned over and broken down and at the same rate and should be staying equal, if you've had a risk factor at that time that might affect your bone, you're going to then have a lower bone mass going into the perimenopause for as a woman Obviously, and you'll be losing from a um, from a, from a lower point, I suppose. And so, I think one of the really really important points is being aware of risk factors. And I think that's what Cookie and I really find um, with the patients that we see is that we want women in particular to be aware of those risk factors for their bones so that they can be the ones going to their healthcare professional and saying, look, actually, I've got this condition that I know affects my bones, or I've been on steroids for whatever reason, or my mum had an osteoporotic fracture in her 70s, which increases risk. And I think that it's the relevance of those risk factors to where you might sit on the on the bone density table, as it were, um, that might change things going forward for, for that individual. So if somebody comes to a GP and is, is at risk of, of an osteoporotic fracture, what would be the first line of care? What would be the kind of medication or lifestyle interventions that would be recommended? So what we tend to do in that scenario is recommend that a, that a patient has something called a FRAX score done. And this is essentially a risk assessment where we put into a calculation system patients' risks and it predicts a woman's risk of a hip or a major major osteoporotic fracture over 10 years. So it includes things like, you know, a woman's age, um, her height and weight, as Laura said, family history, medication that they're on. And it creates this lovely risk, which then helps us determine what we do next. And essentially, if a woman's risk is over 10%, once it's fracture score has been calculated and it's really straightforward for a GP to be able to do this. So this is something patients can go into their GPs and ask for and actually patients can do it themselves online. That's what it's such an easy thing to do. Great. Um, and if essentially if a patient's risk comes up over 10%, they are deemed to be high risk and these patients should go on to have a DEXA scan, which is the next step for assessing a patient's bone mass density. And depending on the outcome of that, we would then decide whether the patient does or doesn't have osteoporosis. And that's not the the, the only outcome that we're looking for. We're not just looking to see that whether someone has osteoporosis or, or osteopenia. 
what Laura and I want to do and what I think a lot of menopause specialists want to do is, is for patients to be coming in and saying, I've got this risk factor. You know, as Laura said, my, my, my family history of osteoporosis is, is big. And how can I prevent getting this myself? And the, the treatment is, is huge and it's very holistic, Liz. So, you know, osteoporosis treatment is, is holistic, as is menopause care. And it involves not only dietary changes, lifestyle changes, including cutting down on alcohol and not smoking, you know, making sure that patients are doing good weight bearing exercise several times a week. But it also should include, as long as there aren't any contraindications, in our perimenopausal women, HRT and estrogen particularly, obviously, is, is the key thing that goes down and, and, and really increases a woman's risk of osteoporosis. And, and if we can replace this in patients that, that, that it's safe to replace in, that that is really, really important for their bone health going forwards. Yeah, that's a really interesting it's a really interesting discussion because I know there's also been talk about the side effects of some of the other drug protocols, things like bisphosphonates, for example, which seem to have a kind of a limited shelf life and after five years or so, you know, potentially do more harm than good. So obviously with estrogen, it's it's something that's a natural hormone for women naturally and is and is going to maintain elasticity. You talk there about lifestyle changes and food, and I know that we will come on in the second half to talk more about food and, and eating disregularities in particular. We're always taught at school, aren't we, about the importance of calcium, healthy hair and nails and bones, of course. So, you know, what is the truth there about being able to build calcium back into our bones? I've often heard it said that actually beyond the age of I don't know, late 20s, you can't actually put any more calcium into your bones at all, no matter what you eat. So, so you know, ca calcium um, is really important for our bones and, and it's important to have enough calcium in your diet. But, you know, if you have enough calcium in your diet, having calcium supplementation isn't going to change your bone density. And calcium supplementation, if you've already got osteoporosis, will not repair that damage. But it is important to have enough calcium. We need about 700 to 1,000 milligrams a day, about a pint and a half of milk. Well, of milk isn't it it is a lot yeah. of milk less I, cheese really... i guess you could eat you know, <laughs> cream and cheese it's instead so, or yogurt it's so difficult yeah. it is difficult isn't it because we're all you know we're meant to be sort of you know we're told not to have too much fat in our diet um uh, so it, it, it's uh, yeah it's a balance isn't it because actually those things are really important and of course the protein that comes with that is also really important for our bones and uh, you know i think with calcium if you're getting it from your diet it's better than taking a supplement and if you're worried about your calcium intake you can use an amazing tool online called the edinburgh calcium calculator which if you just pop it into google it will come up and it takes you through a whole form and you can work out if you're having enough calcium and the other really important uh, sort of dietary element is vitamin d well it's dietary in part um that is part of the problem actually is that vitamin d is actually very difficult to get from our diet so we only get about 10 percent um it's found in eggs and 40 
find cereals, breads, oily fish, but actually most of it comes from our exposure to sunlight. Um, and I think for us, you know, living in the UK, therein lies, you know, part of the problem in that yep. we actually need about 20 to 30 minutes a day of a midday sun in the summer on our arms and face to make enough vitamin D. And, you know, it, it, lots of us wear sun cream now, which is obviously really important because skin cancer is very relevant. And so a lot of us are just not getting enough. And we've often, you know, we're running out by Christmas. Um, so the recommendation is to, to take a vitamin D supplement, at least in the winter, but actually for anyone who has an additional risk factor, it's all year round. It's really important. And then what about uh, anti-nutrients in foods, phytates, for example? You know, these have been shown to leach out calcium and magnesium from bones. Might there be more issues there for people who are more plant-based, for example? So that's a really interesting topic, Liz. And and unfortunately, there, there, there aren't enough data on this to say whether they do or don't impact. Um, but you're absolutely right. So phytates are, are found in things like whole grains, seeds and some nuts. And they can reduce the absorption of certain minerals, including iron, zinc, magnesium and calcium. Very interestingly, there was a systematic review done a few years ago that did show that vegetarians and vegans do have a lower bone mass density and actually vegans more than vegetarians. So in answer to your question, I don't think we know enough about phytates to know their true impact on on calcium and bone mass density. Uh, Further research is needed, but it's definitely something to think about. And those patients who do have a vegetarian and vegan diet really do need to be thinking about their calcium intake and taking a vitamin D supplement to make sure that their nutrition is optimised for their bone health. Very interesting. Well, of course, that does get us to start thinking more about food and perhaps our relationship with it. So when we come back in a moment, I do want to look more specifically at disordered eating and bone health. So don't go away. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Laura, I'm fascinated by your research. And I mentioned that you've published a really important paper on all of this. And that was particularly looking at bone health in women suffering with anorexia. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So myself and Kiki and a couple of other colleagues wrote a paper looking at what we do to, you know, help with bone health in women suffering from anorexia. And we came across this study because we were seeing women in our menopause clinic who had developed osteoporosis perhaps earlier than than we had anticipated. Um, and then delving into their past medical history, realized that they'd suffered from anorexia in, in their in their teens and their adolescence. So in that crucial bone building time. And then as NHS GPs, we were then seeing those adolescent girls and girls in their in their early 20s suffering from anorexia and started to, to really think, gosh, you know, we've seen the knock-on consequences of this in, in, in women in our menopause clinic. What can we do for these, you know, really vulnerable girls and their bones? And we started looking into research and guidelines. And we just found that actually you know, we found lots of things. We found that in the UK, it's quite a postcode lottery. So there's different things done in different areas. But certainly locally for us, there's not much thought given to bone protection for young women suffering with anorexia. Um, So we went on to look at some case studies and we looked at how GPs locally were managing specific patients with anorexia um, in their surgeries. I mean, thinking back to the last, you know, just couple of years, obviously, we know the devastating effect of lockdown on on mental health. And I witnessed it in my own family. I have two young daughters and it was an absolute unmitigated disaster on every level. And I was absolutely shocked to read the NHS data shows UK admissions for eating disorders have risen, I think it's by 84% in the last five years. And anorexia, as you mentioned, is often something that we associate with teenagers, with younger women. But these kinds of eating disorders, they absolutely affect women in midlife too, don't they, Kuki? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that that um, they affect women of all ages. And Laura and I see that in our menopause clinic. It is Anorexia is twice as common in teenage girls. And actually, the typical age of onset is around 15 but definitely we see it in older women. And, you know, Liz, as you've just said, it's a heartbreaking disease um, for both patients, families, but but also for clinicians and researchers trying to help them because fewer than half fully recover from from their anorexia and up to 30% of these patients actually never recover. And anorexia actually has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disease with um, suicide rates being 18 times higher than the general population. So wow, it, it's a real, it is a real problem. And I think we all probably know someone who has anorexia, whether it's a daughter or a niece or, or an auntie. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the lifetime prevalence of anorexia, it, it's a common condition. It, it affects two to 4% of women. Um, and, and as we've mm. talked about from a bone health perspective, 
you know, the majority of these girls, I know we can, we've said it affects women of all ages, but the majority of them are presenting and having their anorexia in their teenage years. And this is at the crucial stage of their bone development. So what happens is that insult on bone health because of a lack of estrogen and because of a lack of nutrients then creates a lower bone mass density for the rest of their lives. They never reach their peak bone mass. And what we're trying to raise awareness on is, is that there have been some good studies to show that actually treating these girls, not only with replacing their food, but also thinking about actually using HRT, so estrogen, to protect their bones can be really, really positive for their long-term outcome. Gosh, so treating younger women who are nowhere near perimenopausal with estrogen, transdermal estrogen presumably, through the skin, specifically to protect bones in later life. That is, that is fascinating. Have there been any trials done on that yet? There, there have been quite a few studies, actually, and one, one good trial in particular that has shown that, that, so you're absolutely right, estrogen through the skin, and that was actually something that we specifically looked at in the study. Um, we looked at how this is being managed, and we found uh, studies have shown that actually giving oral estrogen in the combined contraceptive pill does not effectively protect bones specifically in this population of women suffering from anorexia, really? um, which is to do with complex hormonal factors yeah so it has to be estrogen through the skin and there have been some good studies that have shown that it is effective and you know as we talked about right at the beginning of the podcast you know that really crucial bone accrual time that's largely driven by by estrogen what happens with women suffering from anorexia is that they develop a shutdown of of the axis that stimulates the ovary to produce estrogen so it's it becomes this hypo estrogenic state so a low estrogen state and that really affects the bone building in in those really crucial years. And as Cookie said, that can affect their bone mineral density for the rest of their lives. And we found in our study that the the women who had had a DEXA, about 30% has had a scan and most of those had had it done later in life following an osteoporotic fracture. And that was the the reason that they ended up having their DEXA scan. And those women had had a a normal um, BMI for many years before they'd had their DEXA. So it wasn't anorexia at that point in time that had affected their bones. It was the history of anorexia earlier on in their lives. And so it's just a really crucial, we feel it's a really crucial point, particularly, as you said, with with eating disorders being so devastating and being on the rise. um, It's something that I think just really needs more awareness because we have a treatment that might be able to help. Yeah. Absolutely safe and effective and, and cheap and, and simple. And, you know, I, I, I speak as, as a mum and I know there'll be lots of mums listening to this as well as younger women too. When you do have somebody in the family uh, or you are somebody who simply will not eat, or presumably this also affects bulimics, you know, people who will eat and then will throw up afterwards. So somebody who's not not getting their nutrients through food, to be able to use a simple patch, for example, to have transdermal estrogen delivered through the skin to protect bone health because we're talking about this very small window of opportunity, aren't we, that then shuts down. So unless we get these young women during those sort of early 20s, late teens, early 20s, it's too late then. You know, the, the stable door is shut. That You know, it's gone. The horse is gone and, and you know, you can't really properly play catch up. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, the data looking at the proportion of anorexic girls that 
that have osteoporosis and osteopenia is, is staggering and shows that we aren't treating these women enough. Um, 90% of anorexic girls have osteopenia and 40% have osteoporosis. So it just shows that, that, that this is, is something that, yeah. that isn't being treated enough. It isn't being recognized enough. And I, I think the overwhelming message is that if you know of someone who is anorexic, it's to go and ask about bone health. And what about the eating disorder charities? Are they working with you on this? Is there interest? Are they raising awareness that these are questions that you could be asking of your healthcare provider? We, we did explore that a little bit in, in the when we wrote the paper. We wrote to the eating disorder services locally to, to ask, to say, you know, what, what do you do? And I, I think, unfortunately, the eating disorder services are so underfunded that actually that there isn't enough resource for them to see enough women to help them to gain weight, to help their bones. And actually, you know, the, the, the message that came back was that this is not something that they do at the moment. Um, so they, they don't consider That's estrogen tragic. through the skin. Um, when it's so easy. It is, it is. It's, listen, absolutely. here's your food supplement and, you know, go away and just put a patch on. And, and presumably, you know, from somebody, you know, who writes about oestrogen and obviously talking to you as, as specialists here, both of you, we know that oestrogen is fundamental in so many other things, you know, as a cell receptor on, on every cell in the body and implicated in our, in our immune system, for example. So, you know, if you're going to be low in oestrogen in, in early years... I think it's absolutely fascinating the work that you're doing here in saying let's get it through the skin for these younger vulnerable women too before it's too late. There's actually a school of thought as well that that you know estrogen and we we know we talk about this a lot in in relation to menopause don't we that estrogen helps with cognition and and actually that comes up a lot with these girls and women suffering from anorexia that actually replacing that estrogen in that low estrogen state can actually help to improve eating behaviors as well. Um, which I just I think is so interesting. <gasps> wow. Oh, my goodness. If ever there were some studies that needed immediate emergency funding uh, that could be done because you've got the cure there. You've got the answer, haven't you? It's safe. It's easy. It's effective. It's available. It's not as if we're you know, having to develop some massive new drug that's got to go through trials and interventions and all of that. You know, it's there, guys. It's absolutely there. Okay, so let's move the conversation on to, well, back on perhaps to midlife women. And, you know, I know that a lot of midlife women do take their health extremely seriously and maybe exercise a lot. And like anything, I guess, taken to an extreme, that can also cause issues. Let's talk a little bit about the relative energy deficiency in sports. Kiki, do you want to cover that? Yeah, so this is a fascinating um, diagnosis that has only recently been recognised, only since 2014 that it's actually been recognised as a condition. So some people call it REDS, some people call it RED-S, but it stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And essentially, it is when there isn't enough energy in the system to support the body functions, and it's caused by restrictive eating and high intensity training that then causes a down regulation in the body. And this then leads to several symptoms and it can be very, very catastrophic for bone health, but also mental health and, and other functions. And, and what's really interesting about it is that there are two types. So there's accidental reds where you know athletes are, are not realizing that they're doing this to their body. And then there's the intentional reds where women or, or men are actually consciously making that decision to 
eat less and and or train more. And and this requires a much more psychological approach. But but what's most fascinating about this, Liz, is that the actual prevalence of this in in the general population is huge. And you might think that this just affects this. You might just think it affects um, professional athletes. But actually, a study done recently showed that in recreational athletes, there was a 43% prevalence of reds. Gosh, that is really making me think, you know, as somebody in midlife who took up running, I mean, I, you know, nowhere near marathon running, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a 5k max. But, you know, for somebody who is taking more exercise, the older I get, you know, lifting weights and doing some resistance work and jumping up and down, all those things (laughs) that we're told to do for our bone health. Where is the tipping point then? When does enough or sufficient or optimum then tip over into hey come on that's too much you know for for women one of the biggest things is menstruation that there are points when that's difficult to assess and one of those times is in women on contraception so so women using the combined pill will have an induced bleed that's not a period but that can mask that as a as a symptom and in women who've gone through the menopause who've stopped having periods that that obviously wouldn't be a sign it's a difficult balance so other symptoms would be um, low immunity uh, so so we've already mentioned mentioned how good estrogen is for our immunity so getting lots of coughs and colds um gut symptoms can also be quite common which are often then put down to to sort of ibs so a sensitive bowel um but actually you know energy deficiency can really affect the gut microbiome and the way that we use nutrients in the body can lead to bloating and food sensitivities which can be another sign Kiki mentioned mental health. So, you know, often people suffering from from reds will will say, you know, that their mood is a bit flat all of a sudden and they've lost their get up and go. And another another thing people often say is that their their trajectory for their training flattens out. So your body then starts to change the way that it conserves energy. Um, and, you know, in, in somebody who's not got reds after a training session, your body then uses hormones to increase your energy, your performance performance for the next time well that stops when you've got reds and so you you know athletes will find that actually they're, they're not progressing as they would um, their muscle mass is not building up in the same way that they would expect it to for the level of training that they're doing so there's lots of different symptoms and they can be really subtle that's hard I mean it'd be hard to differentiate any of those really from yeah. possibly anything else I mean let alone chuck perimenopause into the mix and and you've got kind of an unquantifiable unknown haven't you yeah which which i think is one of the reasons why you know it's a condition that that needs much more awareness about it really we need to be talking more about it and you're right you know we're we're so much more aware of our bodies these days you know we're more aware about nutrition we're more aware about the importance of exercise and i think we need to be talking a bit more about about that healthy balance probably and is it as simple as having a bit more estrogen in the diet is is that something that will help. I mean, when I say in the diet, I mean through the skin transdermally or, or estrogen generally, you know, flowing systemically throughout the body. So so treatment is, again, a holistic approach, Liz. So patients need to target all aspects. So they need to think about their diet. They need to think about increasing their calories. They need to think about their training and the intensity of their training. But you absolutely are right. Estrogen is a key part of their treatment, particularly if there is any evidence of osteopenia or osteoporosis. Or often these patients come in and present with fragility fractures. You know, they are ladies in their 30s, 
40s who are really keen athletes and they're getting little fractures in their toes. Um, The treatment of that, absolutely, again, once again, studies have shown that estrogen through the skin, so transdermal estrogen with a cyclical progestogen given so that they have a natural period every month is is the gold standard. And Laura touched on this. Again, there's a lot of um, confusion about the combined oral contraceptive pill. And I think um, some GPs do still feel that they can give this to REDS patients or anorexic patients to protect their bones. But once again, studies have shown that the combined oral contraceptive pill does not protect bones in this scenario because of it being a synthetic estrogen that you take by mouth. As it goes into the liver and is metabolized in the liver, it actually lowers a really important hormone that is really essential for bone production. And so it's actually counterproductive for bones. And it also makes these women feel that they're having a period every month because they have their sort of um, their withdrawal bleed and it can be really confusing. So, yes, it's a multifactorial approach, diet, lifestyle and estrogen through the skin. Kukia, I'm really pleased that you made that differentiation because, you know, we are seeing more and more women, of course, having transdermal estrogen. And that's the, the patch, the gel, the spray and to make that distinction. And I wonder if that's also why there have been more health risks in the past associated with taking estrogen orally as a tablet or a capsule, whereas there have not been the health risks shown by just rubbing it and absorbing it through the skin. Laura, what do you think? Yeah, it's it, it, certainly, you know, we've we've used oral estrogen a lot in the past, haven't we? Both both with HRT and with contraceptives. And, you know, we, we will carry on using oral estrogen as a contraceptive. It's a really excellent contraceptive, the combined pill. I think in relation to that specific population with um, e- either relative energy deficiency or, or anorexia, it's detrimental to bones. In women with who are not suffering from that, that. Um, whilst it, it, it perhaps lowers bone density a little bit, it doesn't have a profound effect on bone. But you're right, other health risks that come with oral estrogen, because it's synthetic and the way it's metabolized through the liver. So one of the main ones is clot risk, is blood clot risk. And, and, and really, that does increase two to threefold in women taking oral estrogen. So we do tend to start with estrogen through the skin now uh, for women who, who are being started on HRT. I think you know, uh, some women really want oral HRT and um, find it mu- fits in much better with their lifestyle. And I think for low risk women who, who want to make that choice, we do still prescribe it uh, on occasion um, because patient choice is really important. Glad but to hear you say that. estrogen through the skin. Yeah, it, it, and it is. And, and, you know, compliance is also really important. So, you know, we've started separating out estrogen and progestogen now by giving this body identical eutrogestin, which which is a wonderful medication and, and, you know, the lowest risk one that we have. But sometimes women will forget to take it, particularly in that cyclical regimen where they're having to do two weeks on, two weeks off. So sometimes it doesn't suit them and patient choice is really important, isn't it? So in low risk women, we do still give oral estrogen, but it's just very important to discuss all those risk factors really carefully. And it's an individualized approach um, and finding what's right for that person, really. I'd like to just cover off two distinct age groups, if I may, perhaps Kuki. If for somebody listening, maybe with a younger daughter, and a lot of this is ringing true. What would you say to do now to prevent issues as she gets older 
of course, acknowledging that it will all be easier saying rather than doing. But, you know, what would be the starting point, do you think, with having these conversations? So I think that, that the message, Laura, and I would like to get across to, to youngsters and obviously mums of young, young girls is that the development of, of our bones is really, really crucial in those early years. And, and, and so this is from, from you know, ch- little toddlers and children up. Good nutrition, exercise is really important for us all trying to create that wonderful high peak bone mass that we will all get to by the age of sort of 25 to 30. So, so you know, adequate calcium and vitamin D in the diet, good exercise. You know, what would I say to a mother of someone who whose daughter has anorexia? I, w- I would say, I hope that you're getting the support from the eating disorder clinic, but I would be asking them to say out loud, how is my daughter's bone health? And have you assessed my daughter's bone health? Has she had a DEXA scan? Does she need to be on treatment for her bones? And I think that is the part of eating disorders that, that isn't done well at the moment. I think that pe- perhaps there are other parts, but I think that's the part we really want to get across to mothers of, of daughters with anorexia is to ask about bone health and to ask for treatment of bone health. And perhaps to ask about considering transdermal HRT. And, and the absolutely that having, is the gold standard treatment yeah absolutely yeah okay and then Laura you know we've been saying that a lot of the damage may well have already been done and a lot of women listening to this right now may be slightly despairing that it's too late how protective for bones is estrogen who might only be getting it now with their HRT you know totally as a kind of an add-on that they weren't even considering that they were taking it for their bone health. Is it going to make any difference? I mean, according to Professor Blooming, it is because it helps with elasticity. Yeah, it's such a good question, Liz. And, and we d- I don't want anyone to despair listening to this good. podcast. I, you know, I want it to be a message of hope that actually there's so much that we can all do for our bones. It's great to have awareness at that really crucial time for our daughters and our nieces and daughters of friends. But actually, if you're a woman listening in midlife and you're worried about your bones, um, I think it's a, it's awareness of those risk factors so that you are empowered, you have that knowledge to be able to go and, and, and ask a healthcare professional. If you do find out that you have got thin bones there are things that you can do so the simple measures that we talked about earlier so good nutrition having enough calcium and vitamin d though if you've already got thin bones that won't repair it but it is still important for bone health you weight can maintain exercise, can't you so- yeah, so, so you don't want to make it worse. So making sure that you've got good vitamin D and, and good calcium and then weight bearing exercise because the way our bones remodel is by having a stress put through them, um, having good muscle tone as well. So even if you're doing exercise that's that's not weight bearing, muscle strength is really important. And then, of course, thinking about estrogen. And I think if you are a woman poised on, on perimenopause um, and you find out that your bones are, are, are slightly thinner, then... Absolutely. You know, estrogen is a really, really excellent treatment. We know, we know it increases bone density and protects bones in that really crucial period where we're about to go through rapid bone loss. Estrogen, you know, can be transformative. Well, that's very encouraging and very positive. And lastly, as we look to the future, perhaps, for treatments for eating disorders like anorexia, we had Dr. Ekaterina Malvaskaya on the podcast not that long ago. She's the founder of the mental health care company Compass Pathways. And they launched a double-blind, randomised control phase two clinical trial uh, not that long ago investigating the efficacy of psilocybin 
in those with anorexia. Are you hopeful for the future of treatment eating disorders, Kuki? What do you think of psychedelics like psilocybin? So such an interesting area. And as we've talked about, you know, it's it's such, anorexia is, is such a tricky condition for patients, families and clinicians because it's hard to recover from. But psilocybin is an exciting, an exciting research compound. So it's a psychoactive, as you said, it's a psychoactive compound found in magic mushrooms. And, and the initial trials have been really positive. And research suggests that these drugs help people who are stuck in a particular mode of thinking um, to change their mindset. And, and it does this by stimulating neuroplasticity, which is essentially the brain's ability to build and recognize brain connections in response to learning. And for anorexic patients, um, this rewiring may then help them to develop a healthier perception of eating. So it's a really exciting area of, of research. Uh, you yeah. know, the more that we can be doing into the, helping to find treatments for these anorexic patients, the better. So I look forward to seeing the results. Yeah, me too. And Laura, to finish with, where would you like to see more work being done here for help for anorexia? I think one of the things that we really find in general practice is it, it's the women who are, you know, it sounds awful to say, but are deemed not unwell enough to be to be under the eating disorders team to get that help um, are managed in, in primary care by GPs. And, you know, we don't have the time or the resources to do that as well as we, we need to be doing for these these women and these girls who can be really poorly. And so I, I would like to see more resources put into, you know, being able to get that crucial help for women suffering from anorexia. We know that the psychological input to help with their disordered eating is really, really crucial. And I think, you know, we definitely find that there just isn't enough of it. There isn't enough availability. And these girls, you know, and women bumble along being seen in primary care. They've got no periods. We know their bone health is being significantly affected. Their BMI is not increasing because they're not getting the help that they need with their eating behaviours. And it's a sad situation and it really, really needs to change. Can I just ask one last question of you, Laura, actually, that's just popped into my mind? And that is, I have read that for those with a history in the past of an eating disorder, come perimenopause time, it can rear its ugly head again. And is this connected? Well, presumably it must be connected in some way to our fluctuating hormones. And could evening out the oestrogen help to prevent a relapse of a perhaps a lifetime ago situation of anorexia or disordered eating? That's such an interesting question. And I, I, I think something that women say to us all the time in our clinic is that they struggle with their weight around the menopause. And I, I think that that perimenopausal weight gain can can really trigger deep-seated feelings of insecurity about weight in women who have struggled with their eating in the past. And I wonder if, if for some women that's where it comes from. Um, and you're absolutely right, Liz. I, I imagine that, that you know, we, we know that we gain weight um, around the, the perimenopause, which is tied up in insulin resistance, often which is tied up with estrogen. But also if you're feeling not very good in the, you know, as women often don't around the, the perimenopause, it's very difficult to make healthy food choices. And that then drives this vicious cycle, doesn't it? Um, and, and often leads to, to more weight gain. And so, so absolutely, I think that's another issue that, that, you know, we know that eating disorders are on the rise and we touched on this, but they're not just in the rise in adolescence, they're in the rise in, in women in midlife as well. And we, do, we need more awareness about this. We need to be talking about it more. We don't talk about it enough. 
Um, and I, I think that raising awareness is, you know, starting up those conversations and making them visible and easier to have can only be helpful and a positive step forward. Well, hopefully that's something that we are doing exactly right today. So thank you so much. Dr. Laura Flexer, Dr. Kuki Avery, you're doing absolutely brilliant work and it's been a pleasure to help to raise awareness of it and hopefully trigger some thought-provoking ideas and further conversations for everybody listening and medics beyond. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Liz. It's been so lovely to meet you. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for, for having us. Well, Dr. Laura Flexer and Dr. Kuki Avery, thank you both so much for all the work that you're doing and for sharing it with us today. So fascinating, don't you think? And isn't it amazing how it all seems to revolve around oestrogen? Honestly, sometimes I think we should be renaming this podcast, the Lizelle Wellbeing Oestrogen Podcast. Maybe not, but it does go to show that it is so fundamental, this hormone, in so many aspects and areas of the body. Well, if you have your own story to share, do please leave a comment on Instagram at Lizelle Wellbeing. And you can also find me there personally. I am at Lizelle Me. And as always, you'll find lots more information about menopause, oestrogen, of course, and bone health, lots of links and resources over on lazarewellbeing.com. So that's the place to go if you want to sign up also for the free weekly newsletter. It comes out every Friday tea time. There's also another one called Liz Loves, which is all the discount codes that comes out midweek. Both are filled with plenty of lovely tips for living well. Well, I mentioned our episode on psilocybin therapy. And of course, if you'd prefer to listen back to that episode, or in fact, any other episode ad free, you can now subscribe to the Lizard Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And once you're a subscriber, you get 24 hour early access to those ad free episodes as well. So until the next time we chat, go well. Goodbye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Nushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.